there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mech. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, always hire the Alan Parsons Project to score your fantasy film. <laughs> Which was a mystery to Annie and Mackenzie the last time we mentioned that topic, and now they know. Now we know so, so much. <laughs> this was a sight unseen film for me and Mac. This was Kit's pick this time. <laughs> I'm pleased. So we watched the movie Lady Hawk, and we're going to talk about that one today. Yeah. <laughs> this is a 1985 movie directed by the same guy who made The Goonies, among other films. And this actually came out the same year as The Goonies. So what a banner year for, <laughs> for film everywhere, <laughs> for Richard Donner and film at large. <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder if it's, it's like a feature of every Richard Donner movie is that it will be like very solid plot wise, but there will be at least one absolutely baffling artistic decision in it. Man alive. <laughs> Speaking of artistic decisions, this stars friggin' Matthew Broderick. For some reason. This is post-War Games Matthew Broderick. Just barely. This is one of those movies where the focus is on the wrong character. Yeah, this is a big trouble in Little China situation where this movie's actually about the sidekick. <laughs> this is post-War Games Matthew Broderick by a couple of years. He's still a little bit away from Ferris Bueller Matthew Broderick. He's not yet tricked everyone in the United States into believing that it's a good idea for him to narrate to the screen for the whole movie. <laughs> but he's trying it out here. He's trying it out here mostly by talking to God through the whole movie. <laughs> Are you there, God? It's me, Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie takes place in France, by the way, featuring zero French accents. <laughs> Which, honestly, on some level, might at least be moderately acceptable. Except that everyone speaks in a whole range of other accents. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> No one decided to pick what the we're all speaking French French accent is. <laughs> they just went with everything. Also of note, this is Michelle Pfeiffer. The, Michelle Pfeiffer's in here, by the way. Young Michelle Pfeiffer. With short hair. With short hair. Baby Michelle Pfeiffer. Powerful, powerful presence of Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie. <laughs> the uh, whole plot of this movie is everyone is in love with Michelle Pfeiffer and you buy it. <laughs> yeah. It's very Arthurian in that it's basically just like a lady gave a whole bunch of people boners and that made a lot of problems. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and Rucker Hauer, although apparently for the lead, Etienne of Navarre, they originally had Kurt Russell lined up and then Kurt L Russell dropped out at the last minute. So they got Rucker Hauer in. Can you imagine Kurt Russell, though? I think I like Rucker Hauer better in this role. Rucker Hauer does, like, repressed courtly knighthood love yeah. very well in a way that Kurt Russell I don't think would work. So I looked up a bunch of his roles because I swear I'd seen his face around, but I don't like immediately remember what else he was in. <laughs> He's a Dutch actor. Yes. Was he the bad guy in Blade Runner? I don't. Yeah. He was the guy who did the speech everyone knows from Blade Runner. <laughs> oh, Tears in the Rain, etc., etc. Yes. Huh. Okay. Now he's a knight. Now he's a knight and it works. It does. I was sitting there and I was like, okay, Matthew Broderick's obnoxious. Okay, Matthew Broderick's obnoxious. Okay, it's 20 minutes of Matthew Broderick being obnoxious so far. Oh, hello, night man. You're cool. <laughs> oh, right. Here's a man who feels a lot of feelings, but he's very carefully restraining them all. It's one of Mackenzie's favorites. <laughs> it's my type. <laughs> If it were for the 20 minutes of Matthew Broderick, it would have been directly aimed at Mackenzie. Yeah. <laughs> what about this movie made you want to inflict it upon us, Kit? I don't know. I just It just feels like our shit. 
I can get behind that. It's, it's a very effective, like, romantic fantasy movie. It's every mom's favorite movie, whether she knows it yet or not. Kind of vibes with at least one massively baffling artistic decision. <laughs> so that it feels like I will fight you material. I'm into it. Yeah. This one's going to be a little hard to talk about, folks. We're going to be using a lot of, like, similes here because... Well, the baffling decision here kind of hits us right out of the bat as the credits start rolling. <laughs> yeah, we start this movie with like, you know, some artistic shots. It's zoomed in really hard, really close on the title Lady Hawk. And as it passes over the sun, it turns into the moon and it's all very artistic. And you get kind of a, a vaguely 80s twinkly vibe in the background. And then it displays the theme. And then the actual soundtrack kicks in, and I would like to read you a paragraph from the Wikipedia <laughs> article for this movie. Please, please do. The film soundtrack, composed by Andrew Powell, has been criticized as one of the worst of any film, with one reviewer calling it the cream of the crop when it comes to atrocious scores, and another saying it sounded like an exercise video that got played on top of a low-budget 80s sitcom. It has been placed at the top of a list of worst movie sound scores and appears on three other lists of bad movie music. Another commentator calls it one of the most widely mocked soundtracks in the history of film. Many cinema goers found the soundtrack jarring with its use of keyboard and guitar, incompatible with the fantasy genre which normally uses more subtle symphonic tracks. Like, 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 I just... This sounds like a mu music for an FMV computer game with light JRP elements from the late 80s. It is so much. It is so much. There's another paragraph here. Powell has commented on the poor reception to the soundtrack, explaining that he did not, in fact, use a lot of rock music in it, and that the criticism was not warranted. <laughs> really? He has not worked on many film soundtracks since. <laughs> it's... it's it like, the music from an average episode of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe sounds more thematically appropriate on a shoestring budget than any music <laughs> in this movie. It's just... It's like a jazzercise video. <laughs> it's, it's so much. It sounds so bad. The whole thing sounds like a MIDI. It's so much. That you would find on a GeoCities page in 1993. <laughs> and it's 1985, so there's this whole opening credit sequence that lasts for like two minutes, and it's just two minutes of artistic shots of a hawk and this music. <laughs> I can't... It's so bad. Like, again, I, I, I wish, I wish... God, Lucas, if you... Surely no nobody would prosecute us legally <laughs> if you can find some of this. Holy shit. <laughs> I just dear listeners. Lucas, just put 10 seconds in. Just 10 <laughs> seconds, Lucas. Dear listeners, you have to understand that the whole movie's like this. <laughs> it's so much. <laughs> It's so much. For what is at its heart, like, just a, a perfectly serviceable, like, 80s sword and board movie. <laughs> it would be so unremarkable. Like, it would not be as much of a standout as it is if it were not for this baffling decision. <laughs> the Alan Parsons Project. The Alan Parsons Project. And they actually, during the, t the the opening credits, make sure that they say music produced by Alan Parsons, you know, of the project. <laughs> I want to know that before I started watching this, I messaged Annie. I said, is Lady Hawk a thing right now? 
And Annie said, no, why? Oh, yeah. And I said, because people on my Facebook are discussing Lady Hawk right now. Yeah. But it turned out it was because it was released on April 12th. And so people were free watching. It. Yeah. And we're recording close to that one. Yeah. So good job, Kit. <laughs> I didn't do that on purpose. Too bad. Oh, God. Following the most intense two minutes of your life. I, every <laughs> time, every time I watch this movie, I think I'm prepared for what's about to happen. And I never am. I immediately lose it as soon as the music kicks in. It's just so uh, God, uh, no, I can't. I can't live in that space. We'll never get through the rest of this. <laughs> so after that happens, we just cut straight to like, like a dirt wall, I think is our first shot of this movie. That's not a hawk. A dirt wall and then a hand. Yeah, a dirt wall and then a hand busting through. And then we do some quick rapid shots of like, oh, we're in an abbey or a castle of some kind. It's called Aquila. There's some hangings happening. We get a shot of, of a bishop who's going to be relevant later. And then the bishop is like, three more! And especially, I want Gaston! For some reason. For reasons. Never made clear. Never made clear. But the guards go down into the prison, which is, you, you've seen medieval prisons in movies. It's that. <laughs> there are no surprises here. There's no surprises here. Like, visually. Yeah, no, we've seen this. This may be the exact same set that was used in a couple of other movies. But anyway, <laughs> the guards get down and they start asking her for Philippe Gaston. And of course, there's the one inmate who's just, you know, completely delirious by this point. He starts giggling over the mouse went down the drain because Philippe Gaston is known as the mouse. And then he points. You see this, how tiny this hole in the floor is. And the guard's like, oh, no fucking way. <laughs> We've heard a little bit of, like, someone behind this wall saying, like, impossible. Nothing is impossible. Come on, mouse, dig. And you think for a second, oh, maybe there's two people here. No. No. It's just Matthew Broderick talking to himself. No, it's just Matthew Broderick. It's just going to be Matthew Broderick talking to himself for the next 20 minutes, folks. Buckle yeah, up. Buckle up. He, he breaks, like, a wider hole in the thing, and he's like, oh, it's not unlike escaping mother's womb. God, what a memory. Hold on. This raises so many questions. Hold on. I should note, it's not just for the next 20 minutes. Sporadically throughout the movie, we just have Matthew Broderick talking to himself for five minutes span. When Matthew Broderick is not in a shot with another person, he's just talking to himself slash God slash a horse. <laughs> Sometimes all at once. There are many good horses in this film, by the way. The horses are all good. Sometimes also a bird. <laughs> Does Matthew Broderick have memories of being born? <laughs> he remembers being born. Does he have, like, you could just make, like, a womb metaphor in, in, like, a cave or escaping a cave. It happens all the time in, like, every piece of literature you're probably going to have to read at some point in school. People love womb metaphors, <laughs> but, like, Matthew? <laughs> Sir? It helps that this character is a compulsive liar, so whether any single thing he says in this movie is true is highly questionable. He manages to get out, he escapes into the sewers, and it's, you know, it's a sewer sequence. You've probably played a dungeon dragon. Once he ends up underwater, there is even, like, the underwater Mario music. <laughs> Infinite sewer maps. <laughs> There is a bit where he finds, like, a tunnel up to, like, a drain up to the main church of, I guess, whatever this complex is. There's a bit where, like, he pokes up through it and there's a little girl that comes over and in the most 80-yard-ass shit I've ever heard in my life <laughs> says, hello, what are you doing down there? A grown woman speaking in falsetto, clearly. Yes, absolutely. This isn't the last time we hear this lady either. Yeah. <laughs> 
there's this whole bit where like the guards come bustling through and one of them steps on Matthew Broderick's fingers and he plummets and lands underwater and then he has to go swimming to get out. At some point, he prays to God that something doesn't kill him as it slowly floats towards him. It's just a fully intact cow, like a like a like a like a bull skull. Yeah, he thinks it's an alligator. <laughs> Is that what he thinks it is? Yeah. He never really makes that clear. What does he think it is? This is France. At first, I thought it was an alligator, to be fair. I was like, why is there an alligator in the sewer here? What does he think this is? He's, he's in medieval France. Has he even heard of an alligator? <laughs> this is medieval France that prominently features a red-tailed hawk. Just putting that yeah. one out there. Although that one is magic. We'll get to my eyewitness video on that later. At a certain point, I'm just going to get sick of hosting this podcast and put an educational video on for you guys. <laughs> I mean, I've done that. Might as well. Yeah. <laughs> Mackenzie's had two educational video episodes. What are you talking about? Yeah, I, do, I don't know what Matthew Broderick thinks this is, but it's a cow skull. And the thing is that, like, we're in a setting like the movie has just started. We haven't fully established if there's magic in this setting or not and what kind of magic it is. So you're sitting there, like, trying to adjust your expectations. Like, is there a monster down here? Because it doesn't look like anything. Is there a magic hippopotamus in the sewer? What are we doing? doing here? How many puppets should I be expecting? The answer is none. No puppets. The answer is none puppets. <laughs> none. No puppets. Oh, the animal budget for this movie must have been so high. <laughs> it's got so many good horses in it, though. So many good horses. So Gaston makes it out into, like, the moat outside. Immediately cuts a purse. <laughs> He's like, I forgot, I promise never to pick a pocket again if, as long as that cow skull isn't whatever the fuck I think it is. And then he gets out there, immediately cuts a purse, and he says, Now I know I promised, but also I know that you know what a weak-willed person I am. We have like a quick cut to like some guys, I think it's the bishop and a prominent person who I never caught his name in the whole movie. He's like a guard captain or something. He's the new Navarre. He's the guard captain. So the bishop and the guard captain do like a quick thing about like a prisoner that has escaped. Then the bishop, just so you know that he's the bad guy, basically instantly gives the exact same speech as Hopper from A Bug's Life. <laughs> about how, like, if one ant stands up to us, then they all might stand up to us. I'm the evil bishop. <laughs> it's important to establish character within the first 10 seconds of somebody being on screen. <laughs> it's just, we gotta chase him down. Because he sure doesn't establish much character later. <laughs> After Gaston has stolen some coins, he just starts, like, doing a little travel montage, talking to himself and to God. He runs across the mountains barefoot. <laughs> and eventually, after running for a while and talking about the food he likes the whole time and then complaining about wolves, which is definitely Navarre, he finally reaches a town wherein he promptly steals some clothes and shoes. With that ADR lady back being like, he's taking daddy's shoes! <laughs> <laughs> For a master thief, he's not very good at stealing clothes. He's just visibly like being like, look over there, and then shoving stuff under his shirt. <laughs> I mean, to his credit, nobody actually stops him. Yeah. No, everyone's just like, oh, just let him go. I don't want to deal with this. It's a Matthew Broderick. We don't want to get in on this. No. Then he goes to a tavern, and you will never guess <laughs> who is also at this tavern. It's like, hello, innkeeper. Let me immediately talk about how I escaped from prison. I'm sure no one's after me. <laughs> and then another guy's like, oh, you escaped from Aquila. I've been in Aquila and out too. In fact, I work there. In fact, like half of us are guards. Hello. <laughs> Uh, 
And then Matthew Broderick does a whole fucking chase scene and his escape tactic consists entirely of being child-sized and annoying. <laughs> Assassin's Creed, this is not. <laughs> There's like some trellises he climbs up and like kicks down. He squirms down under the floorboards of this raised area. At one point he gets grabbed from behind and just goes full dead weight like a four-year-old. <laughs> But eventually his shenanigans don't really work all that well, but he is rescued because the first of many dudes in this movie gets hit by a crossbow bolt. <laughs> and we finally see Rutger Hauer, a.k.a. Navarre, the true hero of this film. That's a good outfit. <laughs> He's all in black. Cloak has a red lining. Oh, yeah. You know all the good shit that they would later do for Captain Phasma visually in, in the Star Warses? It's that. It's that, but he's a knight. Yeah. Yeah. Although he's not Gwendolyn Christie. And oh, what if he was, though? <laughs> One of my great gripes about, like, I don't remember the first time I watched this movie. I've been aware of it my entire life. And I'm a deeply annoyed that, like, fan fiction doesn't have more Ladyhawk AUs. <laughs> you would think they would be all over the place. There's a whole bunch of Sentinel AUs, but no Ladyhawk AUs. As in, like, a setting where characters from a different thing are in a Ladyhawk situation, or Ladyhawk characters are in different settings? No, as in, like, your OTP is in a Ladyhawk situation. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, God. It, it's just, it's rife with angst. You'd think that would be evergreen. It's a perfect angst situation. And it lets you come up with personas for your characters without having to do, like, oh. Damon Vic or Furry Vic. Everybody loves coming up with personas. Yeah. That's my call to action for this episode. More Ladyhawk AUs, please. <laughs> yeah, there's like this whole scene where like one of the guards ends up facing off against Rutger Hauer and he's like stunned and happy to see, oh, look, it's Captain Navarre. And there's like this little moment of connection. And then fucking shithead Marquet pushes that guy from behind onto Navarre's sword. There are so many people getting crossbow bolts and getting impaled by swords. There is so much sword impaling in this movie. Swords are flung so often just across scenes. There is so much sword throwing and sword impaling and crossbow bolt deaths in this movie. To the point where you're like, so what is their armor made out of again? <laughs> is it paper? Is chain mail tissue paper? Is scale mail tissue paper? I guess it is. Not that this is a complaint, of course. Realistic medieval combat would be even slower and more tedious than the combat <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> you wouldn't want that. There's a lot of really big swords in this movie, and there's a lot of impaling, and like dudes just going straight through these things, like like a hot knife through butter. It's pretty good. <laughs> there's also like one part in this whole combat sequence where Captain Navarre throws like the fakest punch I've seen outside of a wrestling match. It's great. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. And just imagine that 10 seconds of soundtrack looping over this entire fight scene because it's here. Oh, man. <laughs> None of it is appropriate. None of it is appropriate. And what's even funnier is that, like, from this point onward, like, the movie intermittently has a rainbow filter over every shot. <laughs> because it's fantasy. Because it's fantasy, you see. Also, speaking of fantasy, this fight scene literally ends with the guard captain's ass on fire. Yeah. That's just the ending point. They're just yeah. like, well, my ass was lit on fire. I I'm done here. Let's go. Yeah, I'm, I'm clocking out for today. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Matthew Broderick is running away. And Wrecker Hauer gets on his gigantic, beautiful horse. Oh, my God. Can we talk about this horse? His gigantic, beautiful black Frisian. Yeah. Okay. Lucas, I need you to play the eyewitness video theme here briefly for a second. <laughs> 
Okay. So the horse character's name is Goliath. Goliath is played by a 19-year-old Frisian stallion named Othello. The Frisian is noted for being descended from the breeds that were preferred for like knights in armor. This is a big, like nearly draft size horse. This is a big, powerful horse. And the fun thing about Frisians is that they are almost entirely black. Like, that's just a feature of the breed. Most Frisians are black. <sighs> he's got, like, a wavy mane and tail, and he's gigantic and gorgeous, and, like, he's got matching tack. He's got tack that matches Navarre's armor. <laughs> Someone styled this horse. <laughs> also, this is a very well-trained horse, because this horse, whenever he does a trot, it is one of the incredibly fancy English-style <laughs> trots, where his legs yeah. come all the way up. He does a little fancy prance. Yeah, he's doing a pavane. As if to sell me even more on Navarre, this is the same kind yes. of horse my paladin boyfriend in my D&D game rides. Oh my god, of course it is. Oh, naturally. And so I'm just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, also this horse can jump over a fence where the other guy's horses cannot, so that ends the chase scene. Is <laughs> that so the other horses refuse the jump and Goliath just goes right over. <laughs> like, there's a point where Gaston tries to get up on someone else's horse, but none of the horses are gonna let him. <laughs> What happens is that Navarre is charging up to Gaston, then just picks him up basically by the scruff of his collar yeah. and swings him across the front. Not gracefully, might I add. This man is stomach down, planking on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> He's just slung like a sack of potatoes over the saddle horn. Saddle horn. <laughs> We also get a scene where the hawk comes flying in to land on Navarre's wrist and there's like a little laser beam sound effect. <laughs> okay, now another quick eyewitness video about this bird. <laughs> this is one of two red-tailed hawks that were used on this movie. There was like a hawk that did all the flying and a hawk that did all the sitting on Rucker Hauer's wrist. Incidentally, one of the birds went on to become an Audubon bird ambassador, which is pretty cool. Oh, but that is neat. This is a red-tailed hawk. This movie was filmed in Italy. It takes place in France. The red-tailed hawk is native to neither of those places, as it is a North American, Central American breed. Here's, like, my favorite thing is that, like, it is so unusual to actually get to see a red-tailed hawk in a movie making real red-tailed hawk sounds. Not to say that people usually try to dub something over the red-tailed hawk, simply that the red-tailed hawk is used as a catch-all for large bird of prey in most things. Famously, anytime an ad in the United States wants to use a bald eagle, our national bird, as something big and majestic, they will dub over a red-tailed hawk because bald eagles sound like little babies. <laughs> they do. Yeah, bald eagles do not sound impressive at all. Also, the red-tailed hawk is also sometimes referred to as the red-tailed buzzard because they are part of the Buteo genus and not the Accipiter genus. Also, hi, anyone who knows the word thermals exclusively because of Animorphs, look, it's Tobias. <laughs> <laughs> look, it's Tobias. We like red-tailed hawks here. There's one in my neighborhood. I hear it sometimes. Ooh. Cool. I just like birds. <laughs> birds are good, actually. I like birds and I like horses, and this movie may have been a factor in that. <laughs> Can't imagine. These are some very well-trained birds, by the way. Yes. This movie is the gateway drug to being really into Mercedes Lackey as a kid. <laughs> a fantasy author who is also majorly into birds and horses and not much else. So Navarre and Gaston ride for a while. Eventually, Gaston has apparently been allowed to, like, resituate himself and actually sit up on the horse. <laughs> 
<laughs> but of course, this is a big horse, but it's not a big enough horse for two adult men to be riding on it for a prolonged period of time. No, so there's a lot of shots in this movie where, like, one of them is riding the horse and, like, either Navarre is just sort of, like, gracefully walking this horse or it's Navarre and the horse and Gaston is sort of stumbling behind. <laughs> He's just <laughs> jogging to keep up. <laughs> Eventually they travel for a while and then Navarre's like, all right, we need to, like, sleep for the night. Don't worry about it. Here's a farm in the middle of the woods. Oh, here's a woodcutter's hut. Here is his wife who just does some of the strangest acting yeah. I've seen in this entire movie. God. <laughs> it's got some real, like, Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Like, energy. <laughs> Monty Python vibes. <laughs> <laughs> she spends most of her screen time either making high-pitched noises or hiding behind her husband. It's just so strange. <laughs> it's like a cartoon. It's just so the strangest acting I've ever seen. <laughs> and I've seen Venom. <laughs> so eventually they're persuaded to take some money. The woodcutter and his wife allow them to sleep in the barn. Also, the important point of this scene is that we learn the horse's name. It's Goliath. And he's a very good boy. It occurs to me that the horse's actual name, Othello, like, I like that better as a horse name. But also, this takes place in the 14th century. Othello hadn't been written yet. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I suppose not. Also, as Matthew Broderick leads Goliath away, he's like, let me tell you a little story about a guy named David. <laughs> and then Navarre just dramatically looks at the sun setting and says, one day. <laughs> Uh, Rucker Howard knows what movie he's in. Because this is Broodmaster 5000. I love him. Yeah. Rucker Howard knows that he is in a Harlequin romance novel. <laughs> there are certain <laughs> expectations for how he conducts himself as a result. <laughs> so Gaston takes care of the horse and then he's like, actually, this all seems like something I should not be involved in. I'm just going to do a leave. And of course, he talks to himself for... The five minutes he wanders out doing his leave. So long. He's talking to God and then he hears a branch snap and then he's like, oh, I better talk as if other people are here. He's like, ah, Louis, you brought your crossbow. Oh, there's, you've got a sword. Let's all go back to the woodcutter's camp. Like it's gonna work. Like it's gonna work. And I'm like, I admire that he's like, oh, you know what? This is worth a shot. If I die, I die. So he makes it back to the hut and everything. Where the woodcutter is just like, all right, screw this, and just <laughs> decides to try and cut off Matthew Broderick's head, presumably because he's just tired of all the chatter. Possibly. Like, he just out of nowhere decides he's going to axe murder Matthew Broderick. And like, is it because he, he figures he wants all of their money instead of just some of it? Like, unknown. There's an easier way to steal somebody's money. <laughs> yeah, axe murdering them is maybe overkill. <laughs> You know, after you axe murder somebody, you got to make sure that you're burying their body way far away from where you both shit and where you get the water. And then it, it, otherwise there's going to be contamination. It, it, it's a whole thing. Plus bears. Plus bears. It's a <laughs> whole thing. <laughs> uh, anyway, we don't have to worry about this guy's motivations for long because he immediately gets his throat torn out by a wolf. Yep. <laughs> This is the point where I have just like, my notes are just because I'm going into this blind. Is this a werewolf situation? <laughs> <laughs> so 
So Gaston like makes it back up into the loft where they were, gets the crossbow and tries to load it, but he's bad at it because he's the sidekick. And also he's a civilian in a time and place where owning a sword or any kind of weapon does get you killed. And this is like, this is like a really nice crossbow, by the way. Yeah, this is, this is a nice crossbow. Yeah, Navarre's got a really good crossbow. It's a really good crossbow. It can load up two, two bolts at a time. Oh, it's so fancy looking. And obviously Gaston has no idea what the hell to do with it. And he tries to aim it at the wolf. Maybe he gets it working. And then he's stopped by the sudden appearance of a Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer just reaches over and grabs the bolt out of the crossbow. She's like, nah, hold up, dude. Nah. Nah, nah bud. <laughs> nah, dog. And Matthew Broderick is, of course, struck speechless by the sudden appearance of Michelle Pfeiffer in all her glory. In this dirty barn. (laughs) We would all be reacting in this fashion. And of course she's immaculate because she's Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes, of course. She's gorgeous. She's in natural makeup. She's clearly cut her own hair off with a knife at some point. It looks great on her. She's got really intense eyes. It's Michelle Pfeiffer. They hired her to be the Pfeifferist she could be, and by God, she delivered. <laughs> oh, God, did she deliver. And so she's just like, nah, just just hold up. And she just slowly, elegantly walks out towards the wolf. And Gaston's <laughs> like, what? What the shit? What the shit? And the wolf is, of course, delighted to see her. It, because it's a good dog. You, you get some tail wags in there. Good boy. It's a good dog. It's a good boy. It's a good dog for her and her alone. Everyone else that is absolutely a wild animal. Which is just, mm, mm, love that shit. That is some good shit. That is good shit. Love it. Good shit. Some good shit. Love it. That is the good shit. Love that. No, no, you're absolutely right about the lady hockey you thing. No, mm, mm, that's mm. good shit. It's very good. They just like walk off somewhere and Gaston, left to his lonesome, staring at this, does another little rambling prayer to God that basically amounts to, please not this shit. <laughs> Is it at this point where we flash to the captain of the guard getting back to the bishop? We do a couple of cuts with him. First, there's just one thing where we cut to the guard captain riding through a whole herd of sheep just to be a prick. Yeah. And then he stops off at a riverbank and switches horses, which is something I don't see a lot in movies featuring horseback riding, is the fact that if you ride a horse at a full gallop for a prolonged period of time, it will die. (laughs) Yeah, the horse will just either refuse to move or the horse will die, depending on how the horse is trained. So he switches horses and then he keeps galloping towards Aquila. And in the meantime, we cut to some more like wandering there's a little bit of a joke about how like gaston keeps mistaking goliath the horse for a girl he keeps using she and it's like there is a point where like he gets corrected early on and he does peek down between the horse's legs like oh he (laughs) i mean this horse's dick is fairly obvious throughout the movie i'm just gonna point that it's a male horse they're not subtle Yeah, they're not subtle. And also, like, it's a horse. They don't care about pronouns. (laughs) Goliath is beautiful. Goliath is so beautiful. Goliath is absolutely gorgeous. And what's what's really funny is that the next scene we have with Navarre and Gaston is just Navarre, his usual self after having apparently disappeared last night, his bird, and Gaston leading the horse. And Gaston is just saying, oh, yeah. And then I was like, oh, I bet I'm dreaming. And then the girl said, oh, yeah, you're probably dreaming. (laughs) It's like, what did that morning look like? Did he eventually (laughs) fall asleep? How exactly did everyone in the morning deal with the woodcutter's ravaged corpse? 
<laughs> yeah, the woodcutter's wife is still in play. Did they just wake up to the sound of her screaming bizarrely? That is her husband. Yep. Or is she just like, God damn it. Well, <laughs> guess I'll have to chop the wood now. <sighs> or did she just make some more weird faces at the camera? <laughs> we just don't know. It's probably for the best that this was cut. <laughs> Yeah, because instead we cut to Gaston telling the whole story about, like, the whole thing. And that's the point where the audience is like, oh, okay, the hawk's a lady and the wolf's the night. They switch at the day and the night. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the audience catches on to this basically immediately, but we do not get confirmation for, like, another third of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> instead, we're just going to have a man make moon eyes at a hawk that he clearly wants to make out with. Yeah. Yeah. He's just gazing lovingly at this hawk throughout this entire scene. And, like, it's a good hawk, but I don't know if you want to make kissy faces at the hawk. <laughs> it's especially funny since, like, when it comes to handling birds of prey, like, birds of prey don't socially bond with their handlers. You're The best you're going to get out of a bird like that is grim tolerance. <laughs> so, <laughs> so these feelings are absolutely not reciprocated by the stunt bird. <laughs> No, because later in the movie, and this is important context for this, later in the movie, it is confirmed that they don't have people brains when they're animals. Yeah. It's just a hawk right now. It's just a hawk. <laughs> they do not have any memory of being people. They're just animals. <laughs> Her brain is the size of my thumb. <laughs> What she is thinking about right now is not, oh my god, there's my boyfriend, Navar, I love him so much. What she's thinking is, mouse. <laughs> mouse. Mouse, eat. Eat mouse. Want, ra want, want eat mouse. Want to eat mouse. Want to eat rabbit. Eat. Want to eat rabbit. Fly. Fly. No. Sit. Fly, fly. <laughs> want food. Want food. Mouse. Mouse. Now the guard captain finally arrives back at the castle. And he goes and the bishop is like, do you have Gaston? And he's like, no, sir. And he's like, then why have you brought yourself before me? Disgusting like that. And he's like, <laughs> what is so important about this thing? And he's like, <laughs> Naval's back, sir. And the bishop proceeds to be like, walk with me. And then has a speech where he talks like someone is holding a gun to his head and telling him to get the speech <laughs> out as fast as possible. <laughs> Elocution is bananas in this movie. And also, he's just sort of taking in, like, a very chaste dance sequence. I'm not sure what's happening here in this entertainment in the court. Yeah, he's watching a pretty young lady dance around in a dress pattern with feathers. So take from that what you will. Because <laughs> the bishop is immediately like, listen to me. Do not kill that sexy hawk. <laughs> yeah. Rucker Hauer has a bird with him. Do not kill the fucking bird. If you kill the bird, I kill you. Got it? If you kill that beautiful, sexy bird. <laughs> also, he says that, like, Navarre is the messenger of Satan, which is fantastic. <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> and this is all while he is, again, as Mackenzie points out, he is just rattling through these lines. He is just going through them at the speed of light. Great storms announce themselves to the simple breeze, Captain and a single random spark can ignite the fires of rebellion. It's so fast. Don't harm the hawk. If you harm the hawk, then the new god captain will be overseeing your execution. You should make sure of that. Just make sure the hawk's fine. Also, this guy is a founder of Satan. Don't worry about it. This man is speaking as though he is a bus that will explode if it goes under 55 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> the fastest acting I've ever seen. <laughs> And, like, this man only speaks really, 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 really quickly or not at all, and he just stares at the camera. <laughs> and this is what they wanted from this man in this movie. This is how they wanted him to be, I guess. 
<laughs> we cut back to Gaston, who is using a giant fucking sword. A giant fucking shiny, beautiful sword encrusted with jewels. To cut wood. To chop wood. <laughs> <laughs> Rutger Hauer is naturally not thrilled about this. And the best part is that he's using it so badly. He is like, yeah. <laughs> it's a heavy sword. A heavy sword gets thrown constantly. <laughs> yes. At least two or three times, this sword <laughs> is thrown. Yeah, put that in your pocket for later. <laughs> also, when Rucker Howard finally gets the sword back from Matthew Broderick, he starts explaining like all the gems on the hilt. And he's like, oh, this one was for my grandfather. This is my great grandfather. My father put this one in during the Crusades. There's a blank spot here. And Matthew Broderick's like, I didn't steal a gem. <laughs> in a way that suggests that he would have if he wanted to. And Rucker Howard's like, no, 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 this is mine to fill. And you think... Because in the previous scene, the bishop has this ring that he makes everybody kiss, like on his thumb, with a big gem on it. And you're like, oh, but no, that, <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> no, I guess he's just going to go get a gem somewhere from, you know, a gem monger. It's just a dropped plot thread. Don't worry about it. Anyway, <laughs> we get the story of the sword. He's like, no, I have to do that once I kill the bishop of Aquila. And Gaston is like, mm, no. Oh, I'm going to go. No, I think... I'm out. <laughs> no. Ah, I see. No, thank you. <laughs> I don't think I need to be involved in this plot. This is, this is above my pay grade. I'm a little baby. <laughs> he tries to do a leave. Does not succeed. <laughs> no, Navarre's like, you're the only one who's ever escaped from Aquilar or whatever. You have to come. You have to get me in there. You're my ticket in. And, and Gaston's like, no, no, I don't think I am. I think goodbye. So Navarre throws the sword at his head. <laughs> Embeds itself in a tree. And Gaston's like, so what's the plan? <laughs> like, it vibrates in that tree. <laughs> Uh, this is a two-handed sword, folks. It's a big sword. <laughs> so we cut to night. <laughs> Where it turns out that in order to keep Matthew Broder from doing a leave in the night, Wreckerhauer has tied him to a tree. <laughs> Which Michelle Pfeiffer happens upon after she's just like chasing a rabbit because it turns out you're not so good at hunting rabbits when you're not a bird. <laughs> It is kind of cute just seeing, like, Michelle Pfeiffer, like, jump around at the underbrush trying to catch a rabbit very unsuccessfully. This is not a woman who's ever had to set a snare. <laughs> She's like, I'm really much better at this one of a bird. <laughs> Gaston is like, and he just says, I don't know, I had a fight with, like, the bishop's men or whatever. Listen, don't worry about it. Get me out of here. Please untie me. <laughs> don't worry about why I'm here. Just do it. Because <laughs> I'm not going to worry about why you're here. She frees him. They both hear the wolf howling somewhere, and Gaston runs off while yelling, Tell the captain he has a wicked knot. Oh, does the wolf man have a wicked knot? <laughs> Listen, we can't get into that right now. <laughs> if we had a spray bottle, I would be getting it out right now. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a joke for me. This movie did not even intend to make it. <laughs> yep. Deeply unfortunate. Incredibly mm. unfortunate. Although it does fuel my perpetual concern that this movie is, would this be an OT3 if this was made later or not? <laughs> uh, there's, there's some strong OT3 vibes throughout, but it's, what's really great is after Matthew Broderick gets away, Michelle Fever's just like, he's going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> 
concept of this couple that basically just have to like constantly sort of leave notes for each other or whatever, which by the way, they don't seem to, which, you know, paper can be at a premium at this point, but yeah, <laughs> you could definitely leave notes to each other. That'd be great. Just keep some charcoal and like something. I don't know. I mean, honestly, even if you had like a stick that you could carve something into the dirt or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that Rutger Hauer is doing most of the navigation here also means that like every evening Michelle Pfeiffer wakes up and goes, where the f*** am I? <laughs> Like, think about it. She woke up that night and she was like, man, I'm hungry. I don't know if my boyfriend leaves me any food or not. I guess I'll just go hunt down a rabbit on foot with no weapons. I'm not equipped for this. (laughs) I'm clearly fancier than this. Yes. She's also mostly wearing his clothes. (laughs) And she looks good in them, honestly. She does. Yes. So in the morning, Navarre obviously catches up with Gaston. (laughs) The first bit we get in the sunrise is the bird flying up to land on Navarre's wrist and Navarre going, let's go find Gaston. (laughs) He's not even surprised. (laughs) Gaston, meanwhile, has almost immediately run into a camp of soldiers who all want to murder him. He gets caught so fast. This guy's supposed to be a legendary thief. He always gets caught so fast. And now there's like this big long sequence of crossbow mounted combat where Navarre takes down a whole bunch of these soldiers. The major significant point of this scene is there's a bit where one of the crossbows is aimed at Navarre and then Matthew Broderick knocks his elbow. The crossbow goes up and hits the hawk instead. And like every time I go. (gasps) (laughs) And Navarre instantly starts screaming no. The hawk by itself, by the way, does a very good carefully controlled fall for this. Yes. This was probably not super easy to make it look like a hawk just got shot and now it's like dying. Yeah, there's a bit where the, of like the crossbow bolt going into a visibly fake bird <laughs> and then a very good bird doing what it was trained to do in terms of a controlled fall. By the way, you have to understand that this movie was kind of difficult for me to watch because it turns out that my dog hates horses. <laughs> oh, oh, no. no. <laughs> Every time Brune would see, like, a Goliath in particular on the screen, she would just be like, no, 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 what? No, no. And would just start barking at the television and growling at it because I guess she's very fierce, this little corgi who decided the horses are too large. I will take these horses down, says Brune. Corgis are hunting dogs. What the f- They're hurting dogs. They're like, a sheep is big enough. Anything bigger than a sheep? No, thank you. <laughs> that horse is too big. I hate it. <laughs> Jesus Christ, this dog. <laughs> so Navarre immediately rushes over to the bird and starts, you know, just panicking over her, but eventually gets her swaddled. And oh, swaddled birds are always so good. <laughs> this is at the moment a very patient bird. This bird will stop being patient very quickly. <laughs> oh, it's like whenever you see like birds of prey in like raptor facilities or anything, they have to swaddle them to 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 put them in to to get medicine and do things with them. You got to swaddle the bird. They have to put the bird in a burrito, a burrito <laughs> if you will. You have to make a little burrito blanket. <laughs> And then they just, like, wedge a stick in there. Yeah, they just wedge a stick in there. And then Navarre hands over the bird Rito to Matthew Broderick. It says, take my horse, go to this abbey, talk to the priest there, get the bird fixed. And Matthew Broderick, quite reasonably, is like, that horse is too big. <laughs> yep, that horse too big. He only lets you ride him. Why should I do this? And he's like, only you can do this. And Matthew Broderick's like, I don't know why. And he's like, do it. Yeah. Asshole. Do we find out why? Is it just because it's supposed to be really late in the day or? 
It's really late in the day. Matthew Broderick is small and light. Ah. <laughs> so the horse can go yeah. faster. <laughs> That's Those are the reasons. That's fair. Otherwise, Navarre just hangs out with, of course, his sword is buried in the ground, so it looks like a little cross because, you know, that's just, that's a night thing. That's just a night thing. That's just a thing. Yeah. Also, apparently the scene where Rob uh, Ruckerhauer slaps Goliath's rump and then Goliath charges out with Matthew Broderick on his back. There was a take where Ruckerhauer actually did it a little too hard and the horse took off for real. And Matthew Broderick was not strong enough to pull this horse's head down and get it to stop. So they just had to wait for, for Othello to stop. Oh, boy. <laughs> and then go find Matthew Broderick. <laughs> God, that's such a powerful horse, too. And Matthew Broderick is like a little weenie baby. Yeah, no. Yeah. Oh. I always find it funny in movies where, like, the horse is supposed to be galloping, but also, like, the horse can't go too fast or it'll outrun the camera. So the horse is ostensibly running at top speed, but it's like chin is glued to its chest because the riders had to pull its head down so hard because that, <laughs> that horse wants to go yeehaw. <laughs> They're not letting it yeehaw. <laughs> Uh, Cantor's more comfortable anyway. Oh, God, that's, that horse is so good. I love that horse. It's a very good horse. <laughs> no, that's the thing about horses, folks. Horses go when a horse has decided to go very fast. That horse is just going until it decides <laughs> to stop. <laughs> Navarre hangs out in the field. He prays because he's sad about the bird. And Gaston eventually gets to this abbey. This like ruined abbey. Yeah, where there is like a high up spot that the gate has to be lowered essentially so he can get up and in and everything. So he's just yelling up like, hey, somebody, somebody, I have this bird. <laughs> As the, the priest appears, it's the, the character's name is Imperius. The actor is an Australian actor, Leo McKern, who immediately responds to, hey, I have this injured bird. Well, we'll bring it on in. We'll eat it. <laughs> and then Matthew Broderick's like, we can't eat this bird. And the, the, the best possible line is a response. He just goes, oh, God, it's not Lent again already. Is it? <laughs> I did like that bit. Which is a very relatable line. It's the only yeah. reason you can't eat a bird. It's because it's Lent. It's a very relatable line for those of us who have been inside for three years. Yeah. <laughs> and Matthew Broderick replies with, no, this is Navarre's bird. And the guy goes, oh, shit, yes, bring the bird in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's going to be like, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, shit, it's the plot. Oh, fuck, oh, fuck. <laughs> So he brings in the bird and Imperius turns to Gaston and he's like, no, you wait outside. Obviously, he's not going to. <laughs> nope. No. Dude can pick locks. He goes where he wants. <laughs> it's nightfall by now and Gaston walks in and instead of a bird with an arrow in its shoulder, it's a lady. It's Michelle Pfeiffer with an arrow in her shoulder. <laughs> and he finally puts two and two together. Yep. And he's like, the lady is a is hawk. A hawk. <laughs> Oh, the movie's called Lady Hawk. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have this incredibly dramatic, very good line, which is, are you flesh or are you a spirit? I am sorrow. Oh, it's just some good, good Harlequin <clears throat> romance shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love, I just, I love it. It's so, so melodramatic. It's beautiful. And then there's like this scene of them pulling the arrow out of Michelle Pfeiffer, weirdly intercut with like... The archbishop having a some kind of, like, bad guilt dream thing going on? We cut between the bishop having, like, contorting in bed, Gaston sitting around, and a wolf howling. Which, by the way, I hope you guys <laughs> like the sound of wolf howling. You're gonna hear it a lot. So gonna hear it a lot. much. <laughs> There's so much. And eventually they pull out the arrow and, oh, by the way, that hurts. It's supposed <laughs> to hurt. It hurts a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that fucking sucked for uh, for fake Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> we finally settle on the bishop who is bolting upright in bed, sweating, and someone comes into a room and is like, Your Grace, Césaire has arrived. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, Césaire. What a what a terrific, terrific baffling character. We're not going to see anything about this guy, except that he's a big hairy man who leers at the bishop. Yeah. Like, we're not even going to get to that scene until we get to this next one. That's, that's Alfred Molina under all that, by the way. <laughs> that's Alfred Molina? Good lord. That's Alfred Molina? What? That's Alfred Molina under all of that. <laughs> what the fuck? Why? Because <laughs> it was 1985. He wasn't in Spider-Man yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mackenzie, it's one of your other boyfriends. It is. <laughs> My condolences on what they did to him. This movie apparently is just full of boyfriends. <laughs> the wolf just howls and howls and howls, and we're going to hear it for the rest of this next scene, which is the backstory scene, where Imperius finally fills in Gaston on the whole sordid story because he's the sidekick, so he didn't get this information at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, no, nobody got this information at the beginning of the movie. We've had to put it together through context clues up to this point. It is very much just your typical, like, Arthurian myth story. It's very much in line with those sorts of narrative conventions. And the moral of the story is that Isabeau d'Anjou was too hot. Yep. <laughs> Isabeau d'Anjou comes to Aquila. The archbishop falls in love with her. The captain of the guard also falls in love with her. She loves him back. They have this, you know, beautiful courtly romance. They both have the same priest that they confess to, which was implied to be imperious and later confirmed. And then Imperius, when he's drunk, goes and confesses to the bishop. The bishop finds out that this whole forbidden romance is going on. They flee him. He decides to call on the powers of Satan. Satan. <laughs> you know, as you do. <laughs> to curse them so that by day she's a hawk and by night he's a wolf. And then Matthew Broderick has this terrific line to sum it up, like another one of those Harlequin romance novels. <laughs> Always together, eternally apart. Uh, that is some good shit, though. That's some good shit. It's really good shit. <laughs> that is good shit. Imperius basically turns to Gaston like, you best start believing in Harwick and fantasy novels, Gaston. You're in one. Oh. <laughs> uh. Like, the bishop just straight up in this backstory went into a room, his voice turned into Tony J's, and he sung Hellfire from Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's what this kind of plot is. <laughs> yeah. I'm a holy man, but I have a boner and I don't know what to do about it. I guess I'll make a deal with Satan. <laughs> oh, God. It's such a good scenario. One of them has to be an animal at a time and they just they're always together, but they can only really almost touch each other at sunrise and sunset. Oh, it's so good. Oh, they can't even touch. It's just longing glances. <laughs> it's real powerful. <laughs> Folks, once again, as ever, it's all about the yearning. <laughs> yearning is so good. The yearning, though. <laughs> love a good yearning love a good yearning oh so anyway we finally get the whole story we get some really good lines and then we go back to i guess alfred molina the wolf hunter <laughs> 
And the bishop is just like, listen, I'm really horny for Michelle Pfeiffer. I've just, I've just got this huge boner for Michelle Pfeiffer. I need you to bring me the wolf that's with Michelle Pfeiffer, okay? And the best part is that, like, he barely even talks in this line. He's just staring at the bishop talking about his boner for <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer. Like, <laughs> what? Yeah, like his only line is like, well, I can't kill every wolf these days because of the plague. There's more wolves than people. The bishop just goes on and on. And like after that line, he just stares at him like, wow, dude. What? Okay. This is a lot, man. I'm just a wolf hunter. I'm Alfred Molina. Because he's like, I just want one wolf. The wolf that loves her. (laughs) Sorry? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry? Dudes would literally rather make a deal with Satan to curse their romantic rivals into being animals for half the day than go to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Isabeau finally wakes up, Gaston's there, and then they kind of like talk for a while about this whole situation. And here's the phase of the movie where Gaston decides to be the world's best wingman, except (laughs) only one of them has wings and only one of them's a man. (laughs) Yeah, Matthew Broderick spends a significant part of the rest of the movie just lying. Just, <laughs> just lying. <laughs> like, oh yeah, he definitely talked about you a whole bunch. He loves you so much and he was telling me how much he loves you. He was like, oh man, you're never going to believe how good my girlfriend is. And then she turns into a bird and he turns to Gaston like, oh my god, she just wouldn't stop talking about you all night. She thinks you're so handsome. <laughs> That's the rest of this movie. It's just powerful OT3 vibes. (laughs) This guy just basically just like woos both of them by pretending to be the other person. Either he's the world's best sidekick or he really wants to get in on this. Yeah, one of those two things. I feel like a modern incarnation of this would be like she kisses Matthew Broderick and then Matthew Broderick kisses Rutger Hauer. Oh, Oh, I want to see that modern version of this now. Fan fiction writers, start your engines. It's like she told me to give this to you. <laughs> We've got our flag means death these days. We can get away with a lot more on HBO now. Actually, a version of this with Taika Waititi and it would be very good. <laughs> Just not oh, for, yeah. complete, for completely different reasons. No, no. Like, absolutely, though. Like, you replace Matthew Broderick with Taika Waititi. <laughs> it's perfect. It's good. So the next morning, Michelle Pfeiffer goes to sleep. Navarre comes back after being a little wolf. A very good dog. Well, not quite. The way this scene concludes is that the guards show up to the fucking castle while Michelle Pfeiffer is still a lady, and then she falls off a fucking tower. Oh, you're right. I got a little head. The lighting looks like it's day, but it's very clearly supposed to be like pre-dawn. Like we're looking at like 4 a.m. with the sun rising at like 5. But it's extremely difficult to shoot movies at that hour. Right. So they were just like, it's daytime and we'll pretend it's dawn. Right. (laughs) Imperius is like, actually, I found out how to break the curse. I'm not going to tell you how. <laughs> Don't worry about it, but I know how to break the curse. And Navar can't kill the bishop. Navar can't kill the bishop. And that's a fucking guards show up. <laughs> I guess they just followed, like, Goliath's huge horse tracks all the way to this abbey or whatever. Did they just stop every farmer and shepherd along the way being like, did you see a beautiful horse? <laughs> did you see the most beautiful horse you've ever seen? <laughs> So the guards are yelling at Imperius, being like, hey, priest, we need to search the premises in the name of the bishop. And Imperius is like, I've met the bishop. You look nothing like him. He's just up there doing bits. 
<laughs> he has little booby trap bits. He's just, he's, he's booby trapped the way in. He's like, oh, don't worry. Sorry about the bridge being out. Oh, hey, remember to walk on the left side, I say to you, after you've fallen through the right side. He's just doing bits while Matthew Broderick and Isabeau are escaping. But unfortunately, they escape to the top of a tower. And this works out very poorly for them. Yeah, because, like, the guards do make it all the way up there. And, like, oh. We have this whole thing where it's like, okay, okay, Isabeau falls off the tower and she's hanging onto Gaston's hand and obvious, oh my god, she doesn't want to get dropped. Obviously, she's going to turn into a bird. She's going to turn into a bird. She's going to turn into a bird. Oh, we're going to just drag this out for like two solid minutes. And then finally she lets go and ah, morph into a red-tailed hawk. Yeah, and the thing is, is that this movie was made in 1985, and, and they knew that they did not have, like, the technological ability to do prolonged transformation sequences, but that did not stop them. If this movie was made in, like, the early 90s, we would have been subjected to a really gross CGI morph into a bird, so I'm glad that this movie wasn't made any later than it was. Yes, but the movie does just, like, repeatedly overlay shots of, like, sunlight, birds, and Michelle Pfeiffer's screaming face in a way that, like, you watch it and you go, I don't enjoy watching this. <laughs> no, it was bad to look at, actually. I I'm not into this. Bad to look at. <laughs> <laughs> but she does turn into a bird. Finally, that means Navarre's here, so Navarre just sort of shoots another guard with his crossbow from the top of the tower. It's a lot of guys dying to crossbow shots in this <laughs> There's so many crossbow deaths in this movie. It's good. <laughs> it's like Indiana Jones level of just not wanting to do the fight scene. <laughs> Navarre, you know, pulls up to the front of the, the abbey on his horse. The hawk lands on his wrist. He's saying to the priest, hey, I still fucking hate you, by the way, since I know you're the one who sold this out. But thanks for fixing my girlfriend, Bert. <laughs> yeah, because the priest is like, yeah, I mean, that's fair. That's legit. Fair. However, however, I have a prophecy for you. Do I have some wild ass prophecy shit for you? In three days, there'll be a day without night and a night without day. And you have to both confront the bishop side by side as humans. And Rucker Howard's like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Maybe all those of us in the audience are like, it's an eclipse. It's an eclipse. He's talking about an eclipse. I'm pretty sure we knew about eclipses as a society by this point. Almost definitely. <laughs> I know that they're rare, but they've been happening for a while by this point in history. Yep. Whatever. Rucker Howard doesn't care. He wants to kill a bishop. So that's what he's going to do. <laughs> he really wants to kill the bishop. He really wants to kill the bishop. Gaston is like, all right, fine. I ship this now. <laughs> I'm going to go to Aquila with you. And then he tells Imperius, hey, follow us with your dinky little donkey cart. <laughs> He's got a little donkey cart. The donkey's name is Abraham. We'll do a couple of bits where it's just like a dude walking along with a donkey cart to be like, yep, they're still on their way. <laughs> just to establish he's still back there. <laughs> Like, until he finally catches up to them. This is the point where Gaston just sort of like, oh, hey, I'm going to call that bird Lady Hawk now, because that's the title of the movie. <laughs> we do get to them taking shelter, where Gaston just sort of talks to himself again, but now he's talking to a bird instead of God. <laughs> this bird is now his God because she's very pretty. Like I said, this entire movie turns on the premise that everyone is in love with Michelle Pfeiffer, and yeah... It's fine. I mean, it's Michelle Pfeiffer. Her hair is cute and short. Yes. But as it's getting dark, Navarre hands over the bird to Gaston and says, here, take her up ahead. It's getting dark. And Gaston is like, oh, how can you tell sun's setting? And he's like, Navarre's like, you fucking kidding me? 
My life revolves around sunset, you dingus. <laughs> uh, so Gaston takes the bird to a nearby inn and goes into the stables, like fetches her clothes to change into and stuff. Steals clothes. And what's really funny is that he leaves the clothes in there for her to change into. And then he goes outside in the rain and changes out of his wet clothes and into another set of wet clothes. <laughs> It's not his smartest plan. <laughs> what was your idea? What was the goal? Because he doesn't actually know. Like, it's raining. It is pouring. He doesn't actually know when sunset's going to be. He's guessing here. He's just going to wait outside until Michelle Pfeiffer's in there. Meanwhile, we get a brief slow-mo shot of Rucker Hauer running through the woods, tearing his shirt off, and then the camera flashes, and then he's a wolf. <laughs> Which, you know, can we do a bit more of that? <laughs> That's like some Beastmaster-ass shit. <laughs> Gaston comes back into the stable. He again is like, anyway, he's super in love with you. He thinks you're pretty. (laughs) (laughs) He loves the color of your eyes. Uh, uh, And then he's like, oh, also, uh, he said that you should listen to me. And I'm saying that you should go like have some sweet wine and dance and have a good night and stuff. So they head out of the stables and immediately run smack into Cesar's loaded horse with a bunch of wolf pelts on it. And Isabel loses her shit. (laughs) She just starts screaming. Just screaming and crying like she saw a clown eat her pony. (laughs) (laughs) What? What is that simile? What? (laughs) I can't claim credit for that one. That one's from John Rogers. The fuck? Oh, God. Isabel screams. She runs off. And then we cut out to the woods where Cesar is setting a nasty looking wolf trap. And by that, I mean, it's a bear trap. It's one of the ones with the pressure plate in the middle and a whole bunch of teeth. Meanwhile, Isabel's just kind of stumbling through the woods looking for, I guess, Navarre to warn him that... There's wolf fun. I don't know what her goal is in this scene. I don't think she knows. (laughs) She's wandering around and then she hears a wolf that gets set in the trap and she's like, oh, my God. God damn it. There is only one wolf. (laughs) So she runs over and sees uh, Cesar prying this dead wolf out of the trap and she goes to stab him and there's like a brief scuffle. And then actual Navarre Wolf shows up and basically drop kicks this guy into his own wolf trap. Yeah, the trap closes around his head, folks. Oh, it's nasty. Oh, it's nasty. It goes so badly for him. They did some very good makeup work on that. Oh, it's unfortunate. It looks like a meaty crunch there. Ugh. It's not good. <laughs> Bad to listen to. Bad to look at. Woof a doodle. <laughs> Yeah, so that's Cesar. <laughs> Series rap on Cesar. <laughs> movie rap on Cesar. It had Alfred Molina for two days. <laughs> Bye, Alf. See you later, bud. See you in Spider-Man. <laughs> See you in Spider-Man. <laughs> and then, you know, Isabeau has a bit of a cry. And then, you know, Matthew Broderick comes to find her. And that, that scene just kind of ends. <laughs> just kind of bloop. Yeah, because then we cut to the next morning, a sequence that... I don't think they ever quite, like, explain the motivations behind. Because, like, the next morning, we're out in the open, the hawk is flying around, Navarre reaches out his arm as the hawk sort of slowly swoops down, but the hawk just walks straight past him, (laughs) dives straight past him, and lands on Gaston's arm while he's stretching, and he's like, ah, oh, mm, mm, 
Mm, this is awkward. Uh, sorry. Yeah, you can see his life flashing before his eyes. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to die. Because that is a bird of prey rushing at his head, folks. <laughs> First, it's like, oh, God, bird of prey rushing at my head. Then he sees the look on Navarre's face. and He's like, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And, no, no. and Navarre's like, so what happened last night? Give me all the details. You want to tell me what happened with the love of my life and you last night? Hmm? <laughs> and then Gaston's just desperately trying to wingman his way out of this. Like, oh, she just wouldn't stop talking about you. You know, she talked about when you guys met and then she looked sad, I'm guessing, because I know the backstory. But then she looked happy because I also know the backstory and... <laughs> she's Michelle Pfeiffer. And then eventually he's like, all right, look, she's Michelle Pfeiffer. Of course, I've had a boner for a Michelle Pfeiffer. What do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> but also she's like super duper in love with you. She thinks you're so handsome and nice. <laughs> God knows why. <laughs> <laughs> and then like Navarre has this little smile like <laughs> my girlfriend likes me. <laughs> Uh, the hawk landing on his arm does the hawk like him or is this just like animal brain doing a dumb thing or is this supposed to imply that this is also now her boyfriend i don't know i don't know like i said if there was a rate of uh, like uh, three decades later there'd be some powerful ot3 vibes yeah i feel like throughout this movie like all of the trappings are here of ot3 like the vibes are here but the actual like chemistry between the characters at least between Matthew Broderick and the two characters, is not quite there. Yeah, no. Yeah, but that's 99% because it's Matthew Broderick. When Rucker Howard and Michelle Pfeiffer finally get to be on camera at the same time, then they have chemistry, but up until that point. But Matthew Broderick does not really have any chemistry with either of these characters, like, romantically or sexually. But if you put, like, as stated earlier, if you put Taika Waititi in his role, <laughs> it would be there. Say! Taika Waititi, who has chemistry with everybody. Everyone. <laughs> Oh, it just, it, it could be great. <laughs> Especially if you, like, add in some, like, longing shots of, like, one of the characters looking away and then, like, the wingman being like, and also she just couldn't stop talking about how beautiful your your eyes are and the way the light hits your hair. <laughs> what? Huh? Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> It'd be so good. It would be good. Ugh. But we're here. But we're here now. And instead of that... We have, like, two solid minutes of a slow-motion hawk flying around. <laughs> <laughs> With, like, a proper orchestral music this time instead of the weird album. Yeah, where were you guys? Where, where the f*** was this orchestra? Why weren't they in the rest of the movie? <laughs> I mean, it's a very pretty bird, and we should be admiring the bird. Still not a European bird. <laughs> <laughs> but also, why is the sequence here in this movie? Uh, I mean, the movie's two hours long. It's not like they had to pad out to 90 minutes. Yeah, no. This is a movie of a healthy, but not, you know, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Right. As opposed to, I just recently listened to the Kill James Bond episode on No Time to Die, which is two hours and 43 minutes long. It's too much movie. Wow, that's a lot of James Bond. It's too much James Bond. Finally, Imperius has showed up in his little cart. <laughs> his little donkey cart. <laughs> and he and Gaston are like, listen, are... Are you sure you don't want to just, like, wait around for, like, one day? Just, like, 
24 hours. Just give it 24 more hours and we'll see if this whole eclipse thing happens. And Navarro's like, no. <laughs> no, that's stupid. I don't believe in it and I want to kill the bishop. And then just he prances off with his fancy little horse trot. <laughs> I'm going to go kill the bishop. <laughs> clip, clop, clip, clop. And then they're like, oh, fuck, I guess we got to talk to Isabeau instead. <laughs> So they pitch this idea to Isabeau instead. Obviously, Isabeau is like, oh, waiting 24 hours might actually be a good idea. <laughs> it turns out. So let's just bury my boyfriend in the dirt for a while. <laughs> let's just build a wolf trap. <laughs> just hold on to him for 24 hours. So it turns out that's not as easy as one would think. <laughs> Yeah, it turns out to dig a hole deep enough to keep a wolf in it, uh, you also have to dig it deep enough that it's extremely difficult for a skinny little twink and an old man to get out of. <laughs> yeah, like, let's go over our A-team here. It's clearly a fancy lady, a skinny little twink, and an old man. None of them are the strength members of the party. None of them are the ones that you would call upon to, I don't know, restrain a large wild animal. Do literally <laughs> any manual labor with any kind of effectiveness. Nope. But it's okay. We don't have to worry about that because Isabeau spots Navarre the wolf coming across the ice, kind of like goes to stand and call him over and he just falls through the fucking ice. Yeah, because by the way, we're in pretty high elevations right now. There's snow and ice around. <laughs> <laughs> and what follows is the longest f***ing sequence. It is this sequence is so long. Of everybody trying to shimmy their way across the ice on their chest and, and spread out so that way the weight isn't all on one point. To get to the wolf, to tie a rope around it, to try and pull it out with friggin' Matthew Broderick climbing into the water to try and push the wolf out and the wolf not liking this. Yeah, no, the wolf is just completely scratching up Matthew Broderick in the process and like the wolf is making sad dog noises throughout so this is actually genuinely heart-wrenching if only because, you know, sad dog noises. Yeah, because that dog might freeze to death. That's a sad dog. Don't let the dog be sad. <laughs> and then they manage to get Navarre out of the water and then Isabeau goes and hugs him and just leaves Matthew Broderick in the water because f*** him, I guess. Yeah, he doesn't need to climb out of the freezing temperatures that will kill him if he doesn't warm up now. Yeah, Imperius has to drag him out by a rope and then they all just end up lying on the ice for a bit. Like, Don't do that. <laughs> this is a very long sequence. I mean, it's so hard. Yeah, it, it lasts like a million years. It's like, you know, this is realistically the kind of like slow methodical thing you would have to do to get a dumb animal out of the water where it will die. But like, Especially when that animal weighs like 80 pounds. Yeah, yeah. But also, maybe we don't need to see every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> Some judicious cuts would be useful. <laughs> oh, so we then cut to Isabeau and the wolf and the half-assed wolf pit. Yeah, just kind of snuggling. Because, you know, they're dating. <laughs> they're together. <laughs> they're in love. They are in love. And also, Homest Among Us doesn't want to snuggle a wolf. Exactly. Whoops Among Us does not want to snuggle a wolf. As the dawn comes, we finally get to see the two of them watching each other as the sun shifts them, and it's so good. Ugh. It is so good. This would be so much more affecting if, A, the special effects weren't severely f***ed up. <laughs> They're so bad. <laughs> Yeah. It's so bad. And B, the moment the bird flies away, Rutger Hauer, half hanging out of the wolf pit, just makes this noise. Ah! <laughs> 
I don't know what this noise is. <laughs> I found the noise charming. <laughs> it was It was like a noise of longing and loss all in one. Yeah, but it's just such a weird noise to come out of a human being. <laughs> God, though, I do love, like, I know we just talked about how a scene was much longer than it needed to be, but I like that this whole sequence was longer than it really should have been. Yeah. <laughs> I like that we just lingered here for a while of them both being just, like, glowing and transformed and, like, catching in the early rays of the dawn and, like, their fingers both glowing slowly reach, 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 and then she's a hawk. And then Rucker Hauer makes a noise. <laughs> and then Rucker Hauer makes a noise. <laughs> it's about the yearning, folks. <laughs> the yearning. The yearning's so good. <sighs> this movie knew what it was doing. <laughs> it's about the yearning. This movie knew what it was doing, except when it came to the soundtrack. <laughs> Navarre climbs out of the half-ass wolf pit. And then he's like, hey, where the hell is my fancy sword that I had a monologue about? <laughs> it's uh, it's in the lake. It's in the lake. Fell in the lake. It's in the lake. Sword fall in the water. <laughs> Don't look for it. <laughs> and the bar is just like, I guess I'll just have to kill the bishop with one of the other swords I own then. <laughs> one of my many swords. <laughs> he's really pissed off at Gaston. And then eventually, like in this little tussle they have, he sees all of the huge scratches against Gaston's chest. <laughs> It's like, oh, some shit went down, huh? Whoops. <laughs> yeah, Imperius even managed to shame him a little bit by saying he got those by saving your life. Yeah, because it, it is hard to get out of ice. It is hard to get out of a frozen lake, especially if you are a dumb wolf. <laughs> Without hands. Without hands or thumbs. And so Navarre is just like, oh, oh, you guys. Let me teach you how to actually cage a wolf. You idiots. So they wait the 24 hours and build a fancy wolf cage into the donkey cart. The donkey cart's back, y'all. And we finally sneak back into the castle where Gaston, as he's about to sink into the moat again, is like, hey, God, it's me again. <laughs> it's funny how stories are cyclical, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, this entire movie is just let's go in one direction for half the movie and in and the other direction for the other half of the movie. <laughs> Except no one kills a Mortan Joe along the way. Yeah, nobody kills a Morton Joe on the way back. We'll get to that, though. So we are about to conduct a scheme here. Yeah, you can practically either hear the leverage theme in the background. <laughs> You've got Navarre the wolf in the wolf cage. You've got Imperius and Isabeau driving the cart saying, hey, we brought this wolf for the bishop. Sure. That the bishop wants to kill himself. Yes. Yes. I buy this. The bishop's been weird enough about wolves for long <laughs> enough that I feel like the guards would be like, yeah, this tracks. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Gaston is swimming back through the sewers the other way to get into that chapel that we saw on his way out, the one where he can get up through one of the drains. So that was plot relevant. There's a lot of stuff in this er early part of this movie that you're like, oh, wait, that was plot relevant? <laughs> yeah, it turns out this movie didn't do things just on accident. Yeah, it was plot relevant. Which, you know, isn't always what happens. All things considered, this is a fairly tight screenplay. Especially for, like, again, an 80s sword and board movie. Yeah. Gaston has some trouble getting up into the church, and he eventually has to get out his knife because some guy's standing on top of the grate. He has to start stabbing this dude in the foot. <laughs> and the dude's just like, oh, shit, the rats have knives here. <laughs> <laughs> Which, 
honestly, it's medieval France. It's probably rats with knives at this point. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably rats. Definitely. The rats definitely have knives now. Just don't <laughs> worry about it. This is just where we're at these days. The rats just yeah. have knives. I buy it. <laughs> There's the transformation that must have happened off screen, where like the sun came up, Navarre turned back into a people, and Isabeau turned into a bird, and we just didn't see it. Because the next time we see Navarre, Isabeau, and Imperius, Isabeau's a bird, Navarre's a dude, and Imperius has the bird on his wrist. And Navarre is like, all right, I'm going to kill this bishop. I'm definitely going to kill him because I don't think eclipses are real. (laughs) And Imperius is like, eclipses are definitely real. What the fuck are you talking about? He's like, no, shut up. And then he hands Imperius a knife and says, so if I fail to kill the bishop, you should kill the bird. (laughs) And you will know if I failed because they'll just keep going with mass as usual. And the bells will ring at the end of it. Navarre's logic here is, I would say, a little flawed. (laughs) He even has this whole thing. If some dude tries to kill the bishop, they'll just be like, eh, let's just keep going with the service. We don't want to interrupt this. (laughs) They definitely wouldn't ring bells if I attacked and successfully killed the bishop. (laughs) And and like, the best thing is like, I'm going to kill the bishop. And like, Imperius has to be the one that's like, if you do that, what about Isabeau? And he's like, oh, oh, gosh, what about Isabeau? Huh? What about this bird I want to kiss? Can you kill her? <laughs> Actually, can you do me a solid? Can you just kill this bird I want to make out with? Because I'll be dead. I do like that the sort of absurd melodrama of this series of decisions, <laughs> because it it leads to a very satisfying melodramatic conclusion. But also, every yeah. single character in this scene is stupid. <laughs> we have sunk down to like Romeo and Juliet series of stupid, wild decisions that we are making here. <laughs> Because it also leads to an incredibly dramatic beat where an old man holds a knife to a bird's throat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Which sounds like a meme. (laughs) Uh. So anyway, Navarre goes off to kill the bishop. (laughs) And this is accomplished by... Gaston going over and picking the lock on the door into the chapel. And then the doors swing open and Navarre rides in on his fucking horse. Oh, good. That's literally how I wrote it down. Navarre rides in on his fucking horse. Navarre on his fucking horse. He just rides in on his horse, which is doing the fancy pavan on the way in. It's such a fancy horse. This horse is like, I am here. I am fancy. We're gonna do a murder. It's church. I'm here to be fancy. And then he gets like pretty far into the hall and then hears a noise from the door and the Marquis is also riding in on his horse. They're going to do a mounted horse fight in this fucking church. We do a little joust in the middle of church. (laughs) And nobody in this room is like, hey, maybe we should leave. Yeah, everybody is just like, all right, free show. All right, let's just step back a little. I guess I guess this is happening in the middle of mass, sure. Oh my god. And like the bishop throughout this whole long fight scene we're about to have is going to be completely stock still. We will cut back to him to see how he is uh, reacting emotionally to this and the answer will be none. <laughs> none emotion. This man just stares blank-faced at the proceedings here without moving at all. This man is basically just T-posing in the background of this entire scene. (laughs) They forgot to animate him. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, the cinematics keep cutting to him, but they forgot to put the animations in. 
Oh, God. So we have a joust. We have a joust with swords. Yeah, and then they both fall off the horses pretty promptly because there's no way that the climax of this movie can involve two two knights on horseback fighting at a church. They're like, no, we have to get these guys on foot. It should be noted, though, that the Marquette's very good horse does get tripped and falls down and then gets back up. Yes. This is a very good horse. That is not easy for a horse to do on command. Yeah, no, it's a very good horse. It's a very good horse. Also, I do like that Navarre is still, and his horse, just completely all in black, matching tack, matching outfits. And Marquette is also all in white and silver. It's very good. It's all very good. And it's a pure white horse. It's mwah. It would not be, like, suitably dramatic for Navarre to just walk up and mark the bishop. It will also make no sense for the bishop to be, like, actually good at fighting people. We're not going to have, like, a Pope combat Assassin's Creed scene. (laughs) Instead, we have Navarre just fighting the Busey of the movie. Eventually, this fight concludes. Navarre wins. And then we have this goofy little POV shot through his helmet that he has now. It's like like medieval doom. <laughs> like it's the beginning of Halloween. This visor on his helmet has like several slits through it horizontally. So it looks like we are filming through a Venetian blind. <laughs> uh, it loses something a little bit. As he slowly approaches the bishop. And then suddenly a roll of thunder. And he takes off his hood to see it. Uh, yep. Yeah, because eclipses are announced by thunder, I guess. During the fight, somebody's helmet got chucked up really high solely for the purpose of shattering a window so they can see the eclipse from the side <laughs> of the church. Which conveniently directly faces the sun. Yes. The sun is centered in this circular window. I mean, that's probably why that window is there, so the sun can shine through at a certain time of day. However. However. <laughs> however, it is suitably dramatic. And then we also get, you know, we cut briefly to Imperius tucked up in a corner with a knife to a bird's throat, (laughs) (laughs) saying, God, forgive me. We get to this point where, like, there's more sword fighting as the eclipse is starting to happen, which, by the way, the lighting doesn't actually do anything that an eclipse actually does. (laughs) It does not get dark or anything. We just slowly see something covering the sun, but there's some more sword fighting as Navarre takes down some mooks and he's like, oh, wait, what if these guys actually want to ring the bells to announce that some shit's going down in here? (laughs) Oops. Uh, Oops. That's the kill bird signal. Whoops, that's the kill bird signal. The great part is apparently when people asked Rutger Hauer what is the thing he was most proud of about this movie, he says, well, there was one time that I needed to throw a knife at a guy who was about to ring a bell and I flipped the knife in my hand without looking. (laughs) That's the thing he's most proud of this movie. You know, that's a legit thing to be proud of, though. It looks super dope, though. It does look dope. It does look super dope. And he flips it in his hand without looking and throws it at the guy who's about to ring the bell. But then another guy does show up and he's out of knives. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, he has been throwing a lot of weapons and using a lot of swords. And at this point, Gaston is like, here, it turns out your sword wasn't completely lost. Here it is. (laughs) We tucked it up under the cart. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Why did we lie to you about this? This shut up i don't know actually i don't actually know (laughs) (laughs) now gaston has his sword he's ready to go kill the bishop because like the guards are all dead now the bishop still refuses to react for like another minute or so (laughs) and then like the bells ring and navarre oh this part this part is good navarre looks devastated oh god it's so good because he fucked up he fucked up he fucked up. 
He fucked up. His bird wife is dead now. He's pretty sure. So in a rage, he advances on the bishop. There's this whole thing. The bishop looks over Navarre's shoulder and says, Isabeau. And then Navarre is like, Isabeau is dead. And then we see a shape in the out-of-focus background at the door of the church. And then Navarre realizes and turns around and Isabeau comes into focus fully human. And it's fucking brilliant. There's a bit in here where, like, the bishop is like, you can't kill me. That's not how the curse works. And it's like, what? How do you know that? How do you know that? Did Satan tell you? <laughs> who, told, who told everybody about how to break the curse? Yeah, Satan just whispered it to me. Don't worry about it. Who told everybody about this? <laughs> but no, Isabeau's here. That's the important part. Isabeau's here, and she's oh. got something clenched in her fist, and she walks up to the bishop, and it's her jesses and her hood from when she was a bird. She just very dismissively throws them to the ground at his feet, because she's furious with him, because it's his fault. Oh. <laughs> she had to be a fucking bird for so long. And so, like, Navarre does this whole thing where he's like, look at her. Look at her, because the bishop has covered his eyes as soon as Isabeau walks in. Yeah, he's finally doing some acting. <laughs> yeah, he has finally decided to act. He is overcome at the appearance of Isabeau. He's even like covering his eyes with his arms and hands. He's like, look at her. You have to actually look at her and acknowledge what you did, which was make Michelle Pfeiffer into a bird because you wanted to fuck her. <laughs> uh... Look at her. Look at me. Look at us. And then just to confirm, because it is difficult to communicate visually when things like curses are broken, we have Imperius off to the side with Matthew Broderick being like, it worked, the curse is broken. (laughs) I feel like a confrontation should at least be a bit more than visually confirm that we are both in the room. I feel like there should have been something to this. Like maybe Michelle Pfeiffer could have been like, you know, uh, something that at least has the energy of my body will never be his temple. Some kind of like renouncing or like you couldn't keep us apart or love or something, something or this twink undid you. (laughs) But no, we just have Imperius saying it worked. The curse is broken. (laughs) Yeah. And then she gives him like the little falcon hood. They walk away and then the bishop is like, if I can't have you and raises his gigantic staff. Which has a speared tip on the end of it, which we established during the bishop is weird about wolves to the wolf hunter scene. (laughs) (laughs) So he's about to kill Isabeau and then Navarre turns around (laughs) and throws his sword again. (laughs) He just likes throwing his sword, okay? It goes right through the bishop and through the thing that the bishop like smacks up against. And like the tip of it is glowing red hot for a second there. I was like, how fast did he throw this sword? How is he throwing this? This is, this is the big sword. This is such a big sword. <laughs> I'm so glad this movie planted that he can throw his sword. <laughs> There's so much impaling in this movie. Oh, God. Surprisingly bloodless, all things considered. <laughs> Except for that scene where Alfred Molina got his head crushed in a dog trap. (laughs) Yeah, wowzers. And so like, and so the bishop is dead now. And by the way, everybody that was here for mass is still here. (laughs) They're all just watching. (laughs) Nobody left. They hung out this entire fight, which, you know, it looks like it was good entertainment, probably more entertaining than mass, I guess. Or they were like, "Is, is the service over? Should we, should we leave or No. I feel like these two are about to make out. Let's stick around. (laughs) (laughs) And meanwhile, like, Gaston and Imperius are like, all right, well, we're the sidekicks. We should probably head out. 
<laughs> yeah, they fuck off. <laughs> because Navarre and Isabeau have suddenly realized that it's over and they are both human and now they can touch and also make out and just sort of like say each other's names a lot. And like the fact that they're almost babbling with how speechless they are, which, you know, speechless in the ways of like they don't know how to make concrete thoughts right now. Yeah. They're also both very damp. (laughs) (laughs) They're crying a lot. (laughs) It's very nice. They're just overcome with just the ability to be with each other and just even be within proximity of each other and touch. And it's very sweet. It's very sweet. And then Matthew Broderick and Imperius swing by and we like, but like both Navarre and Isabeau kiss Gaston. (laughs) It's like, where's the OT35s? On different cheeks. (laughs) <laughs> on different cheeks. It's just in a different version of this movie. <laughs> uh, and then and then Gaston and Imperius walk off into the sunset together and make a joke about Gaston breaking into heaven, I guess. <laughs> we just get Isabeau and Navarre for the, like, the final shot of this movie twirling each other around while all of these people watch. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody here is just like, huh. Well, so like the bishop is dead. Are we are we mad at this guy or uh, uh, are we mad? What, what just happened, honestly? Did we know what was going on? The bishop did just try to kill someone. That seemed weird. Should we? <laughs> is someone who's gonna tell the archdiocese? <laughs> is that is that is that my job? I don't want to do it. Is, whose job is this? What? How far up the chain does this have to go? Do we send a guy to Rome now? Does somebody have to go to explain that the pope that the bishop got speared with a sword, but I think he deserved it? Maybe <laughs> we weren't really told about how. Wh- yeah, what was somebody's gonna have to explain a backstory to us, everyone in this castle? Did I hear something about a curse? What what, what was up with that? Also, what pope is in charge right now? Because because if it's that one pope who just fucks all the time, he probably won't care. But if it's one of the other popes who just like literally pulls out dead popes and then disbars them, he might care. I mean, it's a bishop. That's kind of a big deal. Nope, movie's over. No, because Navarre just picks up Isabeau and swings her around. And that's just... (laughs) Ah. And that's the movie. And then we go back to this f***ing soundtrack. (laughs) Over the final credits... There's little, this little bleep blorp synth track. Yep. At the end of the credits, there is a bit that says, In loving memory of Little Pasta. Yeah. D- do you know what Little Pasta is? <laughs> no! I didn't want to make a joke about it in case it was something sad. I looked it up. I cannot for the life of me. Like, none of the animals were named Little Pasta, near as I can tell. Who the fuck is Little Pasta? <laughs> Who's Little Pasta? Who's Little Pasta? Audience, if you know Little Pasta, or may in fact be Little Pasta, please let us know. Oh, Little Pasta was the name of the actual hawk which died during production. <gasps> what? That can't be true. The hawk's name was Spike. There were six hawks. Not oh, jeez. And one of them was Little Pasta. Oh, no. Okay, well, that solves that fucking mystery. Okay, Little Pasta is a great name for any animal, but I like the incongruity of naming a beautiful, regal-looking hawk Little Pasta. Anyway, that's the movie. (laughs) And that's Lady Hawk. That's Lady Hawk. That's Lady Hawk. There's just some very good yearning in here, folks. It's good. It's good shit. There's some very good yearning. There could be a very good OT3 here in case anyone wants to rewrite this one and make it gayer. Yeah. Taika Titi, we're looking at you. Yeah. Taika, buddy. Buddy. Come on, bud. You do amazing work, please. Pointing towards the fact that I proposed for this episode, this movie probably would have gone completely unremarked upon by history. 
Except for the fact that the soundtrack is god-awful. <laughs> that, that kept it alive in the public memory long enough for us to find out about this movie. Come for the terrible soundtrack. Stay for the yearning. Yeah, so that, that reinforces my point. You should always hire the Alan Parsons Project to do the fantasy score for your movie. <laughs> just make one really stupid decision for people to wonder at for a while. Yeah, just to make sure that people remember it long enough for the people <laughs> who really want to see this movie who are going to be born several years later to see it. I came out for this movie. This was nice. Yes, yeah. this, this movie's not perfect. It is in many ways deeply flawed, <laughs> especially when it comes to the soundtrack, but... It's fun. Honestly, my only complaint was why were the first 20 minutes just about Matthew Broderick? That was it. Yeah. Yeah. I could do with less Matthew Broderick talking to himself. Yeah. Like, I feel like we could have accelerated that sequence a bit. Again, Ferris Bueller tricked everyone into thinking that Matthew Broderick should talk to the camera a lot. And we have been living in that lie for a long time. <laughs> However, we have Lady Hawk predating that movie that proves that that should not be happening. Ugh. You're right. Now I can't stop thinking about it. Now I just want Lady Hawk AUs. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Fanfic authors, get on it. So much yearning. Pay me and I'll write erotica about it. I might. <laughs> Is it going to be in the style of the last of your erotica that I read slash was subjected to? <laughs> Absolutely. I only write trash erotica. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> it's only fun if it's trash. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> now that we've gone through this, I think it's time for our final facts, folks. Yep. Yes. Kit, what's your final fact? Uh, I mentioned it before, but I'll say it again. Uh, this is your mom's favorite movie, whether she knows it yet or not. <laughs> Mac, what's your final fact? Knights, especially Broodmaster Knights, especially Broodmaster Knights who can't quite get to their love and there's tons of yearning. That is the shit. <laughs> and anyone who tells me otherwise is lying. <laughs> They're just incorrect. They're just incorrect. People are wrong sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Annie, what's your final fact? The only reason the bishop died is because he decided to finally start acting. So here's the thing, folks. If somebody shows up to try and kill you, do not react. You <laughs> stare at that person. You T-pose at them with zero expression until they leave. <laughs> do not react. Their vision is based on movement. <laughs> Romance novel protagonist mission is based on movement <laughs> is maybe the hottest take we've had on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. I think that about wraps us up here for today for Lady Hawk. I think we have very much proven that Alan Parsons should always score your movie. <laughs> <laughs> because wowzers i just folks you should just look up like some videos or something maybe rent this movie or do whatever you need to to listen to this film <laughs> please it's so powerful not in a good way <laughs> every time every time i watch this movie i think i've got a handle on my shit i will not lose it when i hear the opening credits song and i never ever have a handle on my shit i always lose it <laughs> Join us next time when I will be losing it so much because I have a bone to pick. Join us next time when we will be discussing the undeniable fact that Wilbur Weston is the worst man in comics. <laughs> <laughs> folks. Uh, uh, we're talking about Mary Worth, folks. I've got Mary Worth opinions. <laughs> I am intrigued. I am terrified. I will have to start digging up citations because Comics Kingdom only goes back so far. 
But oh boy, oh boy, folks, I'm going to be talking about newspaper comic Mary Worth. And there's going to be some cussing. There's going to be a lot of cussing. <laughs> I'm just picturing like Annie huddled in front of a microfiche reader at a library muttering <laughs> swears to herself. <laughs> it's definitely one of those like horror movie research sequences. There's just dramatic music, close ups of my eyes, just going through page after page after page of old newspapers. <laughs> It's all Mary Worth comics. Zeroing in on one man with a bald spot eating a sandwich. <laughs> I Will Fight You comes out every five weeks. You can find it wherever you download podcasts. It is produced by Lucas Brown of the Math of You podcast. If you would like to uh, support us, a like rating, review, subscribe, wherever you find us is lovely. You can talk to us on Twitter at CRC Podcasts. We are also on Tumblr at Crooked Russian Cam, I think. It's Tumblr. Look it's for Tumblr. us. We're there somewhere. It's crookedrussiancam.tumblr.com, I believe. Yeah, that one. It's mostly automated. <laughs> if you would like to talk to us, I already did that. Give us your money instead. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash crookedrussiancam. Uh, for a dollar a month, uh, as well as other tiers, you can get access to a bunch of things. Early access episodes of I Will Fight You, of particular note for this show, our show notes are at the $5 tier. But there's lots of stuff for that and our other shows, all of which you can find out about at our website, crookedrussiancam.horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. But just for this episode, do dot horse. When you go to patreon.com dot crooked rushing slash crooked rushing cam, it's a four oh four. Oh yeah, it's the gym. Oh, jam. did I say did I say that one? Oh, I'm sorry. It is crooked rush God <laughs> Lucas, please cut in me saying the right one. Patreon.com slash the gem jam. Or just keep all of this. Or just keep all of this. I will never do an outro correctly and I refuse to try. <laughs> I keep all my terrible outros and date me, damn it, Lucas. Just keep it. I refuse to start now. It's been too long. I will always f*** this up. It's part of oh, my yeah. charm at this point. This yep. is my hashtag brand. This is our bit. <laughs> this is a little <laughs> gift for the people who listen past the end of the episode. Then the outtakes reel that Lucas puts in at the end. They're all very good. <laughs> uh, I think I did everything. Did I do everything? Yeah, you did, I think everything. you did everything. Okay, great. Join us next time where I get mad about a newspaper soap opera comic strip at my friends. <laughs> uh, until then, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you. Today's fact. Always hire the Allison, Alan. Sorry, I'm going to do a clean one of that. Yeah, you need a running start at this one. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry, it's also written as Alan's Parson on here. What the fuck? <laughs> like there's many of them? You know, multiple Alan's Parson. <laughs> multiple Alan's Parson. <laughs>